Okay, so that's one point of view. But then coming from a cocoon of where you are, people of the color, how do we break that shell? Right. I mean, I, again, I just think that this is, it's something that it's just not our, you know, we are the victims of this and just the, mm. the, the idea that we have to go about, you know, finding racists to say, excuse me, may I explain this to you, please? You know, like it's just, mm. I just, I, I refuse. I mean, I'm just not just like that to. book says, you know, why I refuse to t- talk to white people yes, about race. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I think I think the way to do it, for me certainly, is to carry on telling the stories I want to tell. I believe everybody has a story. And Dhani has been all about these stories coming from opinions, personal experiences life lessons, and so much more. And somewhere along the lines, we find ourselves being part of these stories or they being part of us in nooks and crannies, in crumbs, in echoes, and reflections. Today we're in conversation with two absolutely vivacious women based in London belonging to the literary circle. Faiza Khan, a London-based editor and critic with bylines in The Guardian, The News Republic and FT. She's currently a consulting publisher with Bloomsbury Publishing. And Moni Mohsen, a freelance journalist and an award-winning novelist. In this podcast, we talk about white supremacy, privilege and the people of colour. These women share incredible insight into these flaring topics. And apart from that, they share with us their laughter and their unprecedented wit. Moni and Faiza, absolutely delighted to have the both of you on Dhani. I am so looking forward to our conversation today. I'm Thank delighted you. to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking so, us, Abhya. Moni, uh, it's always a, a delight talking to you, and you know that. And you've been on Dhani before as well. And I will try and sort of dive right in. And what we're discussing today is, uh, and again, you will, both of you will have your own experiences to share coming from your own uh, professional space and the space that you've grown up in, the space that you have been educated in. But I want to sort of tap into these these notions, I would say, or whether these are phrases or whether these are genetic codes. Supremacy, white supremacy, social Darwinism, privilege, the others, what what all is this? How are we supposed to take that? Because we're all coming from South Asia, so we are not white in any way. So is, is supremacy sort of associated only with skin color? And I, I mean, Moni, you can go first and Faiza, you can follow, but, but sort of take the stage, please. Um. Sadia, thank you. Um, these are very interesting questions, very interesting and very current notions. Um, the world as we 
know has has been turned upside down in the last few months with people um trying to wrestle with these ideas um and i have to say that most of the wrestling is being done in the west because this is where these notions abide um in the rest of the world um there isn't uh, that kind of realization or that kind of um understanding of the world i certainly didn't realize that i was colored quote unquote before i came to um the uk um and um if you read um chimamanda ngozi adichie's book she says you know she you don't realize you are black until you arrive in america um mm. she certainly didn't um although um because you know for us certainly for myself growing up in pakistan i was just uh, some people might even have taught me quite fear as they say in pakistan Um but um <laughs> it was only when I came here that I realized that not only was I not fear I was also therefore not lovely because <laughs> I was a person of color and with that person of color also goes a whole other baggage of 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 um um attributes uh, uh so that um I mean I'm sure Faiza will develop further on this but you know that that we are therefore not possessed of a same degree of understanding or um intellectual depths or um we don't have a culture which is comparable to the west in its finesse and its sophistication and um that we um are therefore not quite up to the mark faiza would you want to shed some light on this Oh gosh, well, I think Moni has said it so well, but I think that actually what I'd heard on um I don't know if you're aware that Moni does Instagram sessions sometimes with authors and she'd done one with this amazing Lebanese writer Rabia Alamuddin if I'm pronouncing it correctly and he had said and you know to, I hadn't really been thinking of it along those lines because one thinks of white supremacy that of course it's any majority culture and so this is of course you know a story which is as old as time it just so happens that in this moment in time the you know the the, the stronger power is this is this white culture and you know when it was not it was people whom one would now say people of color but basically behaving exactly the same way So I think it's just a function of how power works to you um you know you just you justify your bad behavior by saying that the people who do it to you are not who you're doing it to are not fully human in the same way that you are. Mhm. I think Faiza is absolutely yeah. right because if you look back on on um the first encounter between the Mughals and and the Elizabethans from here um because the Mughals were um or indian uh, uh, rulers were in a position sorry much more economically and politically strong um the relationship was actually uh, that the elizabethan um ambassadors ambassadors from elizabeth's court were in fact came as supplicants to the mughal court and slowly mm. as you see in the subcontinent as the british rise the power rises and and the uh, the mughal's power declines you see that inversion take place also in their relationship and you see that 
um, in the beginning, it is the white people who, who come to uh, India and try and ape the ways of the of the um, local people. So they start dressing like them, they start eating like them, they start trying to live like them. But as soon as the British Raj becomes more and more established and the power balance shifts, they start looking down on brown people. They start um, that whole sort of... Um, idea of white supremacy takes root and um, never goes away throughout the years of colonialism. I think, uh, I mean, I'm sorry to like just now <laughs> jump in again, but I think that I hear a lot and rightly in the last couple of years with the very sharp rise of fascism, um, as opposed to the kind of just, you know, low buzz of fascism that is white supremacy. <laughs> But, you know, but with the sort of steep, like un, undeniable rise of it and, you know, powers that are elected like openly, like nakedly fascist. Um, and there's a lot of talk of, you know, unspeakable things being normalized, right? That, you know, sort of racism, Islamophobia, different forms of it that, you know, you can now say things in public in political speeches, you know, that, you know, you absolutely would have ended your career even 10 years ago, but you'd even mm. come out and proudly say it now. So, but what I find as interesting and possibly less commented on, I'm not sure, but going back to what Moni was saying about you know, the Mughals and the, the interaction between the Mughals and the, the East India Company or the interaction between the Mughals and England, um, is that it has been ab abnormalized to think that power is just this thing that does this. So now you are expected to believe that this is just just a trick that white people can do, you know, that nobody has ever in time been culturally superior or mm. that or that people exchanging power and exchanging culture which is obviously the entire story of the world you know that this is now really oh my god they were influenced by turkey you know it's like come on mm. <laughs> like it's suddenly been made into a surprising thing whereas it is the world's most normal process Sure. So the infiltration has been, as you're saying, is has been such that it almost seems natural because that that's what we've grown up in. Yeah. And it's been you, ever thus, I think, Sadia and Faisal, wouldn't you agree? Uh, I'm sorry, what was that? It has been ever thus. Yes, yes, I think it's been ever thus. But yes, as Sadia is saying, we've grown up with it as white mm. supremacy. And I can't, you know, I read about other things. I logically know and I travel to, to you know, ancient parts of the world or parts of the world rather with, with ancient civilization, which is, you know, not the West generally. Um, and I see it in action. I can see all of these things. But it still, like, I've been so indoctrinated by... Yeah. You know, the, by essentially this this very kind of colonial education, or in my case, like just an English education, that it's even though I logically know it, it's still always a surprise to me to see that this is really what sort of world culture is built on. Yeah, yeah. So, if we could just hold on to this indoctrination and how perhaps we can undo it, and just move a little bit on 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 the side, Muni, you are. Uh, an award-winning novelist, and Faiza, you work, um, you're a publisher. So the content that comes from, since we're talking about the subcontinent, that comes through in terms of, I don't know, television or writing or books or poems, how is it 
filtered through what is the general mindset and what is the acceptable content coming from there and what is not. Moni, you want to go first again? Um, yeah, well, as a writer, I um, have to say that, you know, I have been published in the West three times. I have received attention and I have um, been heard. Um, but I, I must say that I, during, you know, my first book came out in 2006. And I think since then, um, the the kinds of books that are being published uh, are, in fact, the instead of becoming uh, the the subjects and the themes, etc., instead of widening and broadening out, they are narrowing down over time. And I think mm. maybe this is also the effect of um, 9-11. Maybe it is because, you know, things take a long time to play out. But I noticed quite early on that the stories that they wanted to hear from the subcontinent, and certainly if you're a Muslim writer writing from Pakistan, because they were engaged for a while um, in this war on terror, in which Pakistan was um, willy-nilly um, uh, a frontline state yet again, um, they wanted to hear only those stories. Because they were spending mm. money in Pakistan, they wanted to hear about whether or not they were winning this war, and we had to give them that story. And if we did not provide... Um, uh, that kind of material, they were okay. They would maybe they would publish you, but they were not that interested. The ones which did really, really well in the last, the books which have done really well in the last 10, 15 years have really been about um, Islamic um, terrorism or the thought of uh, people, um, not just the thought, I mean, or, or of uh, societies which they don't they say, understand the other, you know, we had to make the other explicable. And our job became um, that of almost um, like sort of travel guides who take people into these weird places and try and explain to them, you know, this is how the natives think and this is. And so we had to make the world explicable to them. Um, that mm. I think remained. Um, and there are also certain tropes that they have uh, the publishers, I think, believe that readers have in their minds. And we have in our writing to address those tropes, to understand that this is what is required and to tailor our own writing and our own concerns um, as writers for the market. Um, and those are, you know, those remain fixed, I think. They think of the subcontinent as a place of great misery and sorrow and of yeah. uh, wretchedness and women are um, particularly wretched and so stories which, which which sort of harp on about how women have no agency how women are mistreated how they are killed honor killings uh, how women um, uh, have their children snatched from them etc etc those are the kinds of stories they want to hear and those are the kind of stories they would like to publish that said there are other stories which come out i, I have to be honest and say you know there's not every story is is that but those are the stories which receive the most attention. Those are the stories which receive the most publicity. Um, and those are the stories which are marketed most effectively. So that becomes the kind of story that comes out of the subcontinent. And mm. um, uh, although my books um, on, uh, you know, my, my books are funny and they're satirical, um, that said, I don't think they are non-serious, but they are satirical and funny. They um, They have been published, but... I would say that a huge amount of effort has not been made 
to market my market my books in um, mm. sort of aggressively. Mm. Ironic too, before Pfizer, you go on, ironic to see this because what attracted the West to the subcontinent was mystery, was opulence, was grandeur. And was the chance to make seeing, money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Pfizer. Yes, no, but I, I was going to say that then they took it all and, you know, so then, <laughs> then, <laughs> then all they could do, all that's left is just, you know, the, like the wreckage of what they've left behind for them to come and survey. But, um, but yes, no, I completely, I agree with everything Moni says and I find it quite frustrating sometimes in, in a publishing environment as well, because I know that I work with people who are well-meaning and people who are, you know, by and large sort of exposed to the world, um, some more than others. And ultimately, it is unfortunately just a given that white people are the center of the universe. And I'll give you an example of this, that when I was younger, I would also call things that were not essentially, that were not from the UK or the US world literature, <laughs> which obviously I'm now hugely embarrassed now of having used this term, but, but yeah, so everyone who was, you know, like this was, I don't, I'm not really sure how world literature, but it's sort of, it's like world music, isn't it? It's kind of In like, you know, there's, cinema. yes, exactly. There's like actual music and actual cinema and actual literature. And then there's like world stuff, which you are, um, which is not you're just simply not equal, essentially. So, um, so I'm afraid I feel that is really an underlying belief. I mean, in some way that um, you know that we are different, and that white people are the center of the universe, and that our lives are hence a learning experience for them more so than an opportunity for us to flourish in our full humanity and have our own stories that perhaps white people wouldn't get. And it is our responsibility to make our world comprehensible to them. Yes, yes, absolutely. No, in fact, I misspoke when I said that white people wouldn't get because of course they would. And, you know, in the same way that one has, you know, read and enjoyed so much of their work over the centuries. And I think it's a misconception that they need to you know, have like their food pre-chewed and put in their mouth in this way. I think actually it's quite possible to, to you know, these are all just stories. Everything, these things are far more universal than you give them, than a lot of people give them credit for being. Mm. So if we were to flip the coin and if it is really our duty, can we feed them uh, racial equity? Can we feed them uh, a base where all lives matter and if so we I'm, can, yeah, mm, how? sorry mm. sorry Faiza, go on i'm going to no no not at all i'm going to i'm going to jump in here before moni does basically because <laughs> my main oops oops was my main aim here no no just because because i'm so i feel so passionately about this particular thing so i think i am determined to just not be put in that position i think if you want to write books about race and racial experience that is fantastic and you should do it but i refuse to believe that on my one life you know on this earth and if i'm going to undertake writing something that you know because other people are racists i cannot follow my passion and write 
you know, like a comedy of manners about sex if I feel like it. Like that's just mm. a very personal thing. Mm. I will not do it. So whether, you know, like white people, for heaven's sake, I mean, they can read history books, you know, they don't need all the rest of us to have to shrink our experience, you know, to teach yeah. them these things. So I mm. feel that. And then also the other point at which I, at which I, you know, again, disagree with Moni, basically. We had this conversation before, is that I don't think that, I think that people read books and kind of momentarily are like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, that's so true. It's so unfair. But then when the system around you doesn't, you know, uh, encourage equality, then, you know, whatever you read, you can read things with the absolute kind of, you know, highest form of ethics and morals, but you're not going to wake up the next day and be that person. Mm -hmm. So true. It's the environment, really. It's that what, yeah, yeah, what the, the entire sponge system that's around you that and you're just a little near piece in this. It's true. I get that. Yeah. And quite frankly, you know, um, Sadia, I do not consider my job to be that of a teacher. I am not. Mm. If I wanted to be a teacher, I would have become a teacher. I am a writer and I write what, and first of all, you have to write what pleases you. You know, yeah, um, it's, yeah. it's very mm. difficult to write a book for other people trying to second guess what they would like. Um, That's and, very true. And also it becomes a, a, an exercise in futility because if a novel is about feeling, uh, as Safaiza says, if you want to read, um, if you want to educate yourself, you can go and read um, history books. The difference mm. between novels is that they're about feeling. They're about your personal experience. Um, filtered, you know, may, it may not be autobiographical, but it is always filtered through your own perceptions of the world. And if you um, if you're going to have to filter it through other people's perceptions of the world, then it it is by its very nature false. And um, as far as I'm concerned, there's no point in doing it. Okay, so that's one point of view. But then coming from a cocoon of where you are, people of the color. How do we break that shell? Right. I mean, I, again, I just think that this is, it's something that it's just not our, you know, we are the victims of this and just the, mm -hmm. the, the idea that we have to go about, you know, finding racists to say, excuse me, may I explain this to you, please? You know, like it's just, I just, I, I refuse. I mean, I'm just not and Just like that book says, you know, why I refuse to talk to white people yes. about race. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. I think I think the way to do it, for me certainly, is to carry on telling the stories I want to tell. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Keep your ground. Mm. Yeah, and, mm. and stand my ground, say what I want to, say it in the way I want to. And if they don't want to hear, well, you know, their loss. At the end of the day, I have to write what feels real and important to me. Mm. Um and and um I think um, if, if they don't want to hear, then, you know, you, there's a difference between hearing and listening, right? Um, even if they hear, if they're not listening, then, then what's the point? So you just carry on writing what you want and hope that mm. it sees the hope that there are people like Faisa out there who will publish it. And if they don't publish it, you publish it in your own country, but you mm. have to, carry on or, or you say what you have to on social media because there are no gatekeepers there but you say what you want to say. Faiza you were about to say something? 
Was I? Oh, um, no, I was, uh, I'm always about to say something, Sadia. I just, you know, we've not, we've not met before, but you should know that about me. <laughs> no, I was going to say that James Baldwin, I believe, had said that if I, you know, wasn't obliged to kind of, like, essentially write about race and explain things to people, like, imagine what I would have done with my creative energy. And I just think it's like, it's so unfair that this is what, you know, this is what has been done to non-white writers, that they're just, uh, I mean, obviously, this is not to say that, that people haven't produced, you know, extraordinary work doing this. Um, but it's just so sad that we don't have that freedom, even in this capacity. So you know, it would have been it would have been amazing if they have, you know it is it is amazing as you say that writing is amazing, but that writing would have been more amazing if it had become a period piece. But it's mm. not. That's the tragedy. Mm. We are still explaining. Mm. You know, mm. James Baldwin has been dead over two decades. We are still explaining. And they do that really, I find, deeply offensive thing, which is often done with race and feminism, that you will find somebody saying, look, you know, all people are just human and kind of equal. And somebody will read it today and be like, oh, my God, that was so prescient. <laughs> it's like, no, that was, that was not prescient. You know, you were racist and sexist. Like, why did you say it like that? Rather than, oh, somebody thought, somebody had this thought. I mean, guess what, buddy? We've always had this thought. <laughs> you know, you guys just spoke of history and, and, uh, just a couple of days ago, I watched this documentary by a white guy, inverted commas, whereby he was uh, sort of negating that there have been many theories of how some very, very beautiful uh, historical structures have been put up, say the pyramids in Egypt, uh, have been put up, whereby a lot of um, anthropologists um, negate the fact that it's been built by humans and it is the work of aliens. So what all he was trying to say is that why is, is it may that I, may, these... I interject, may I interject at this point? Please. It's probably archaeologists because we anthropologists are very um, harmless people generally. <laughs> no, no, you're, I'm sorry. You're not harmless, <laughs> but like maybe just not in this way. So. <laughs> Correction. <laughs> Correction. Archaeologists. All he was trying to say was that why is it that white archaeologists are pinning these historical structures down to the work of aliens. Why can they not accept that this could be the work of human beings? Yes, but not white human beings. So it's everywhere. It's not just in art or writing or literature. Well, don't they say, history. I mean, didn't, didn't, wasn't a lot of energy and time spent trying to prove that the um, Taj Mahal was actually designed by Italian um, architects or something or, or that Italian craftsmen came and did all the Pietro Dura. But and, I mean the thing is that it it's perfectly like they you know it's fine to kind of think that you know they may have had a hand in it but just as you're saying with that insidious agenda of but and then in the same way that it'll never be said of Venice that this is so profoundly influenced by Arab craft, you know? So all so of these true. things, I mean, everything yeah. is all mixed up. And as I was saying to you earlier about the, you know, archaeological theory that, you know, if I were white, I would also be ashamed if Stonehenge is all I had to show <laughs> for millennia, frankly. And I would also be trying to pretend that 
you know, someone came down in a spaceship and built the pyramids. And while we are on this, <laughs> on the issue of the pyramids, I would like to say that I, I mean, I love the British Museum and I'm there very, very often. I'm, I have absolutely no, I mean, I know people sort of are, it's very, um, what? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to say politically incorrect. I hate that term. And I think it's just kind of quite meaningless, but it's very out of step for me at the moment to not mind that all of these things are looted from other countries, taken from other countries, bought from other countries. I don't care. I have access to them. I'm delighted. So, mm. um, you know, like really, if anyone tries to take anything out of the British Museum, I will be there chaining myself to it. <laughs> um, but what I wanted to say though about it was that I... I'm always just depressed by the fact that even though they put ancient Egypt in the main hall, when you walk in, obviously the Rosetta Stone is one of the most important things in the museum. I mean, in this country, uh, in you know, in the history of archaeology. But what really bothers me is that they split it up from the rest of Africa. You know, so they kind of pretend like there's you know, this is an ancient civilization, and. Well, they were kind of linked to Greece, so you know, so they have upstairs. They have you walk in. There's Egypt. That there's Greece. Uh, mm. And then downstairs in the basement, there is, uh, you know, Sudan, Nigeria, sort of, except Ethiopia. I mean, which is Ethiopia is in is in a couple of places, but Ethiopia, which is obviously one of the most extraordinary kind of culturally rich countries on this on this earth, and it really bothers me that they don't like to make that connection between even essentially what they perceive as, you know, not black Africans and black Africans, which is also historically erroneous because of course Egypt was, you know, I mean, considerably more mixed than you'll mm. see in, in Hollywood historical representations of it. Oh, it was Charles Heston. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. He's Moses, isn't he? Moses, but I would just like to say in defense of that movie that Yul Brynner, there's a big, <laughs> there's a big head of Ramses II in the British Museum that I frequently go and essentially ogle, uh, because it does look like Yul Brynner. So hmm. there you go. But you know, um, Faiza was talking about Sadia Faiza mentioned the um, Nigerian and and um, other African art. I um, there I am very intrigued by the Ife sculptures which are um, bronze sculptures about 12th century from Nigeria and Benin. And for the mm. longest time, they utterly flummoxed um, white colonials because they could not believe that something of this sophistication and of this um, extraordinary workmanship uh, could come from uh, what they considered to be these backward nations. So they mm. too thought that this was for the work of perhaps of white people who had come there earlier, that they'd been there, or perhaps of another civilization that had, um, which was not African, but some other kind of civilization which had prospered there thousands or hundreds of years before. So this is constant, you know, um, this kind of um, belief, and particularly, I think, in in... Africa in South America was it the same? I don't know. Um, yes, I believe they didn't believe. They also think the Mayan pyramids are made by aliens. <laughs> there you go. There've been some Stupid. books as well, haven't they? About uh, some kind of books pretending to be sort of scientific explorations of of. Uh, Nazca lines, etc., which have you know, right, right. They used to be very popular back in the seventies, late seventies and early eighties. Those kind of conspiracy theories about how aliens had done all this, and uh, suspiciously, the aliens were only ever active in in um, 
what is now known as the third world. They never made it their presence felt in America or in Europe or elsewhere. I mean, nothing nothing was up to their standards in Europe and America. My question is, were they white? Obviously the not. aliens, yes. Yeah. And I think that's a very that's a very good point. Question. Yes, yes. They were not people of color. But they were the others. They were the others. Yes. That's right. Yeah. Good God. My God, ladies, I am quite aware of the fact that you um, both have to go back to your respective works. And uh, just before we leave, uh, I have quite to go reluctant build pyramids to quickly. Part, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have to go and yes, be oppressed by my family or you know whatever. So, <laughs> oh dear. So, uh, both of you have a joint venture, which um is coming out soon and i'm really really thoroughly thoroughly excited about that give us some insight give us a peek anything what's happening what's brewing Paisa, i'll let you go first because i've gone first no, like, honey, that's that's really that's, <laughs> that's very that's thoughtful it's very thoughtful <laughs> of you but please <laughs> go ahead <laughs> Um, Faisal and I are doing a podcast and uh, mm. we have recorded mm. our first uh, episode and we are extremely excited about it. And Faisal, we are over extremely to you. excited. Oh, well, no, just we are extremely excited and we are essentially looking at arts and culture, um, but also diversity. I mean, it's called Browned Off. So every week we'll be Oh, good Lord. I mean, I imagine to some extent shooting the breeze, but uh, looking at at culture-related subjects, um, as we've spoken of today, but with a with an element involving race. I mean, not, I mean, just simply in the way that we see it, because we are, you know, we sit in various parts of belonging and unbelonging in this country, so. Mm. And it will be and- with, with great, um, I, I have to say, it'll be extreme, it'll have a, very strong personal slant as well so it will Mm. not be like a a a lecture or any such thing it'll be Faiza and me basically as she said shooting the breeze nattering about the things which have got under our skin nattering about the things we love nattering about things we loathe and generally being extremely judgmental oh I love it and it would would be quite uh quite uh quite something to listen to with both of your wits uh, witty and sort of coming and clashing on the podcast. I am so looking forward to this. So do you know when you're ready to roll this out, though? Oh, well, uh-huh. you'll be the first to know, Sadia. <laughs> so. I, I, I feel privileged in what it comes Soon. That's right. But very, very soon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, really, we're thinking sort of in the, you know, in the next month or the month after that. So we're just in the in the prep stages, but it's all coming soon. We're very excited. Goody, goody. Perfect. Moni, you on your own, uh, uh, you were in the middle of wrapping up a book. Yes. A novel that you were writing, which is to be published in 21. Absolutely. It will be uh, published at the end of the year, I think, or early next year. You know, with COVID, things are constantly um, being shifted. Um, So hopefully it will be beginning of 2021. Yeah. So um, I'd just like to jump in here because I've read it to say that it is 
just the most brilliant thing. It is the most extraordinary page turner. I read it in three hours and like virtually sustained paper cuts from the speed at which I read it. <laughs> um, and it is this utterly delicious, but also sinister and incisive tale of modern politics. And I think that anyone would be able to relate. So I'm very, very excited about seeing it out in the world. Oh, good. Thank you. Good. So, oh, many, thank you. so many things to look forward to. Brilliant. Ladies, it's been it's been wonderful, wonderful talking to you. And thank you for such a great insight. And especially so that whereby you sort of reiterated and you put that confidence back in me, at least that we don't have to prove anything. You do what you have to do. You do what is coming from within you with complete honesty. And if it is wrapped up with some humor and wit, then why not? But just do whatever you want to. You don't need to prove anything to anybody. Which is probably a life lesson too, let alone just work. Most important for Desi women to remember, <laughs> because we've been told yes, all I was, our lives, yeah. all I our was lives we have to live for other people. <laughs> I'm totally mm -hmm. gung-ho about, yeah, just be yourself and like do it for yourself and, you know, all of that. And then obviously you know, in, in the romantic sphere, it all falls apart <laughs> quite differently. <laughs> Even in the domestic sphere, it falls apart. The minute you close the computer, somebody comes to you and says, where's the sugar? <laughs> you have to drop off to go and find it for them. <laughs> can we, I, I, I love this, by the way, can we, uh, can we have another podcast on this? It'll be, it'll be amazing, by the way. I should I should my, be delighted to return. It's been me. very kind of you to have us. Thank you so much, Sadia. I'm sure you have better people after a while. <laughs> no, I don't. No, I don't. Thank you, Pfizer. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Moni, thank you for coming back Pleasure. on Honey. Thank, thank you so you. much. Ladies, you look after yourself. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.